Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 24. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, this time is your time. This is the Lord's day. And we have carved aside and apart this time for you to speak to us and for us to respond to you. Lord, thank you for each person that is here this morning. Celebrating together as a family your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every day. And on this day, we celebrate. So, Lord, teach us. Not only that, but would you comfort those, especially this morning, who are experiencing trouble, heartache, sadness, insecurity, Bring a special touch of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm really glad that you were not at Isotope Stadium last Sunday night. In fact, was there anybody at Isotope Stadium last... Okay, you were. My apologies. I say that because they asked me to throw the first pitch of the game. Now, I did this years ago. And about three years ago when I did this, the pitch that I threw then went out of my hand, hit the ground, and dribbled toward the catcher. So I thought, okay, great, I can redeem myself. And I even practiced. This is what makes it really, really pathetic. As I went home and I found a buddy and I threw the baseball, got my arm warmed up, and I thought, I can do this. I can make the pitch from my hand to the catcher's glove. I can do it. So I practiced. And then I threw the first pitch. And it left my hand, went about five feet, (laughs) hit the ground, and dribbled to the catcher. Again. So I I think I have become the poster child for bad first pitches. (laughs) And I'm thinking in the future, if Isotope Stadium just wants a good laugh, they'll say, hey, get that preacher kid back here again. That guy will mess it up. It was really bad. And I thought of a story after that that reminded me of what I had done. There was a little boy who took a baseball and bat to his backyard and he stood in the backyard and he announced, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he threw the ball up in the air and he swung his bat and he missed it. And he said to himself, strike one. And undaunted, he threw the second ball up in the air after saying, I'm the greatest hitter in the world, swung and missed it. And he shouted, strike two. And he straightened his cap, spit on his hands, rubbed them together, said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. Threw the ball up, swung, missed. Strike three, he said. Then he paused as if struck by some revelation. He said, wow, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. (laughs) And I thought of that story because as I left the mound, I thought, I'm the greatest umpire in the world. Because even I can tell that was the worst pitch ever. It wasn't baseball. What I did was a mess. 
Imagine if the teams that night played baseball like I play baseball. It wouldn't be a game. It'd be pathetic. It'd be a mess. But that's just baseball. That's just a game. On the serious side, there is coming a time in history that can only be described as the world's greatest mess ever. In fact, things will get so bad, it'll be so chaotic that it will culminate in the very end of all things, the end of the world. Verse 12, Jesus continues telling his disciples, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. The end of the world will come. And what will that be like? How do you think news media agencies would spin the end of the world? Well, somebody thought it might sound like this. If it was USA Today, the headlines might simply read, We're dead. Wall Street Journal would say, Dow Jones plummets as world ends. Microsoft Systems Journal would write, Apple loses market share. Sports Illustrated would have on their cover, Game Over. Rolling Stone magazine might write, The Grateful Dead Reunion Tour. (laughs) Reader's Digest, one word, they just say bye. Discover magazine might have on the cover, How will the extinction of all life as we know it affect the way we view the cosmos? TV Guide would say, Death and Damnation, Nielsen Ratings Soar. And Ladies Home Journal might write, Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day on our new Armageddon diet. (laughs) That's all spin. And a lot of people will spin those events even toward the end. The most accurate reporting comes from the lips of Jesus Christ. The most honest reporting, the most detailed, sobering reporting comes right here in Matthew 24. And you'll recall that it is an answer to questions the disciples asked. The disciples and Jesus had left the Temple Mount. They're on their way down through the Kidron Valley. They go across up the Mount of Olives. They had been dazzled by those monumental structures, the Temple. And they said, look at these buildings and these stones. And Jesus said, Not one of these stones will be left upon another. Every one will be thrown down. Bothered those disciples when they heard that. And so they came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives and they said, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I'm glad they asked that question because Matthew 24 gives the answer. And Jesus gives a list of signs things that people toward the end of time will be able to see just before the end of the age. Spiritual deception is number one. Many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. Violent reaction is number two. There will be wars, rumors of wars, kingdom rising against kingdom, nation against nation. There will be physical disruption Earthquakes, famine, pestilence. 
There will even be hateful persecution of believers. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, in the next several verses, Jesus gives to us four human conditions that will be present up until the end of the world. Four of them. There will be lawlessness. There will be callousness. But there will be faithfulness and there will be responsiveness. And those are the four conditions we want to look at this morning. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 12, Jesus says, Because lawlessness will abound. Now that word lawlessness is just as it is written. Lawlessness, anomion, without legal constraint. Do what you want. But not just lawlessness, but lawlessness will abound, overflow, increase, be at maximum capacity. The New Living Translation says, sin will be rampant everywhere. In other words, Jesus predicts the time is coming when people won't try to hide their sin any longer. They'll be very open, very unashamed, unabashed, very aggressive with it. Which makes sense. If you think about it, once the rapture occurs and all of the believers on planet earth, all of those who stood up for righteous causes, those who protested what's going on on television, those who protested abortion, those who said, hey, we ought to have prayer back in the schools, or or we need God in the Pledge of Allegiance, or we need the Ten Commandments in public places. When all those people are gone, there'll be no restraint. Lawlessness will abound. I was reading a book, and I didn't make it through it because it's just a tough book, by a Russian author named Fyodor Dostoevsky. It's called The Brothers Karamazov. But there's a little statement in there that struck me. He said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. If God does not exist, everything is permissible. Think about it. When those ardent believers in Christ are taken off the earth, and largely you have groups of misinformed, misguided people, but especially those who say, there is no God, everything is permissible. The salt of the earth will be removed. There will be no restraint. Paul weighs in on this issue. Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves... Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Well, when you have that, that means temptation gets really hard even for the strongest believer. So you add to global violence and to spiritual deception and to persecution, if you add to that, all of that, now lawlessness, immoral lewdness, you have a recipe for disaster. In fact, 
I believe it's going to get so bad that the whole concept of sin won't even be around. There'll be such a moral relativism that becomes the the fair of the day. You just do whatever you want because your truth is as valid as anyone else's. There was an airline pilot who was flying over the southeastern United States. As he was flying over the southeastern United States at cruising altitude, he, he wired or he called the nearest ground tower and he said, Please advise, this is flight such and such. We are at 35,000 feet. Please advise, what is the local time? And the tower answered back, Well, which airlines are you? Which threw the pilot for a loop. He said, Well, what does it matter what airlines I am? I just want to know the time. And the tower said, Well, it makes a lot of difference. If you're Transworld Airlines or Pan Am, it's 1,600 hours. If you're Delta or United, it's 4 o'clock p.m. If you're Southern Airways, the little hand is on the 4 and the big hand is on the 12. (laughs) And if you're Skyway Airlines, it's Thursday. Now, could you imagine if every pilot in the air did whatever, however, whenever they wanted to? There would be worldwide pandemonium. Well, now imagine everybody on earth doing their own thing however they wish. There is lawlessness. You have a moral crash. Jesus predicts that as one of the conditions that will be on the earth. There's a second one. Callousness. Same verse. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Notice how the sentence begins with the word because. Because of this condition, there will be then that condition. The first leads to the second. Because there's going to be lawlessness, what follows lawlessness is callousness. That also makes sense. You see, when sin is so rampant that it's everywhere all the time, people become insensitive to it. Doesn't doesn't affect them like it used to. It's like, whatever, everybody's doing it. There's an interesting term that has come up the last several years. You may have heard of it. It's known as compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is a condition that occurs to volunteer workers, sometimes law enforcement officers, sometimes soldiers on the battlefield, most often to NGOs, non-governmental organizations, who come in as relief organizations to help in famine or in war-torn areas where there's catastrophe. But because they're around it so much, they start losing feeling for it. It becomes just routine. It's just another suffering child. They've seen so much that there is compassion fatigue. Somebody once said, if you live in a graveyard too long, you stop crying when somebody dies. That's compassion fatigue. Because there will be lawlessness, sin will be so rampant, there's going to be callousness. Insensitivity. One of the saddest experiences I've ever known is to look at the lives of people that I have known, worshipped with in the past, once so in love with Jesus, but because of the temptations around them, 
the rampant flow, proliferation of sin, they get caught up in it. They become callous to it. They become swept up by it. And so that real drive for Christ isn't there. And that's why we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 3, exhort or encourage one another, how often? Daily. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened, calloused through the deceitfulness of sin. So because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. Now, when it says the love of many, the love of whom exactly? There's many whose love grows cold, but but love for whom? Well, you don't know exactly. It doesn't say. It could be it's the love of many for God that grows cold or the love of many for people that grows cold. I think it's the second. I think the whole context here isn't love for God, but here's the idea. Sin will become so rampant that people will turn inward and become narcissistic and self-serving and their love and respect and compassion for others will start to grow cold. Which, well, it sends up a warning flag for us today, doesn't it? As you look around our culture, would you say that you can already see callousness occurring? Would you say that we're already becoming hardened to people's needs around us? I mean, just follow this line of thinking with me. Back in 1936, a magazine emerged on the American scene, Life Magazine. I used to love looking at Life Magazine. Loved the pictures. And I loved it because there were big pictures and there were just little paragraphs. But it told a story of life. That was 1936. I wasn't around then, by the way. In 1974, another magazine occurred or came on the scene. People magazine. So we went from life to people in life. But a few years later, another magazine came. Us magazine. So it's people, but it's us, not them. So life, people, us. A few years later, another magazine came out. Self. Now, that may just be coincidental, or it might be an interesting trend of a very narcissistic, self-focused culture. You know, I'm waiting for Me Magazine to come out next. I think that's going to be next on the horizon. Now, we are facing an added danger today. Here's the danger we face that predecessors, uh, previous generations, never face like we do. You and I are bombarded with images of war daily, violence daily, sexual exploitation daily. We see so much of it. It's dangerous. What does it lead to? Well, there are several things it leads to. Medical Journal of Pediatrics said children most exposed to sex and violence are the ones most likely to participate in sex and violence. Another study, teens who regularly listen to music with degrading sexual contact are more likely to have intercourse than those who don't. Another study, high school students who watch professional wrestling on television have a habit of getting into fights with their dates. I find that very fascinating. Just watching professional wrestling. 
And then they go out on a date. And it's like, I don't think they're like wrestling. Come on. (laughs) But it's interesting. In being exposed to altercations, you become somebody who does it. But more than that, or not even more than that, alongside of that, there becomes a desensitizing to it, a callousness. Lawlessness leads to callousness. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Those will be two prevalent conditions all over the globe during that time. But there's a third. If you look at the next verse, Jesus continues, there will be faithfulness. For he says in verse 13, but, or in contrast to lawlessness, in contrast to callousness, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, we cheated last week a little bit, didn't we? We looked at this verse briefly. But this verse belongs, as it's written, right after verse 12. So there's a flow here. He who endures to the end shall be saved. We discovered what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if you endure hardship, if you endure tribulation, that that's a means for you to save yourself, to save your soul, that you can be saved eternally by just hanging in there and enduring. It doesn't mean that. We know the Bible says you're saved only by faith through God's grace in the finished work of Jesus Christ shedding His blood on Calvary's cross. That's the only way you're saved. So it doesn't mean that. It's not speaking of that salvation. Nor does this verse mean that if you endure, if you stand up, you'll be kept from physical harm. We know that's not true because... There's going to be lots of people martyred during that time of the tribulation. This simply is a general statement as if to say, though there will be lawlessness and there will be callousness, but there will also be faithfulness. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Now here's an opinion. It's just a thought. Take it or leave it. It could be that this verse will serve as a warning to those living during that time who will be reading Matthew 24. And they're going to be reading it, and they're going to come to this verse, and it's as if to say, if you think you can be safe by renouncing, falling away from Jesus Christ, don't. The only thing for you to do is stand firm and endure. And it could be that it's written specifically for those who will read it. The reason I bring that up, because look in verse 15, which we'll look at next week, but look at the parenthesis. Whoever reads, let him understand. It's as if John knows, I've got to write this down because there's coming a time people are going to read this stuff. And this will be an encouragement to them. Now, I'd like you to keep a marker here. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Because I want to show you how that what Jesus said is added to, fleshed out, greater understood by John in Revelation, chapter 7. We're going to read about the enduring saints during the tribulation period. You turn to Revelation 7. You're introduced to a group of 144,000 Jewish people. They're introduced first because they might become the catalysts of salvation to the second group that we read about in verse 9. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed 
with white robes and palm branches in their hands. Go down to verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? Where'd they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger any more, watch this, or thirst any more, nor shall the sun strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So obviously it's a group who has suffered greatly. They once hungered, but not anymore. They once thirsted. But not anymore. Why'd they hunger? Why'd they thirst? We can presume because they refused to take the mark of the beast, the mark of the Antichrist, which is a buy-in to a whole economic process. They didn't do that. They obviously suffered a great deal. They cried many tears during that time because the promise is now God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this is a suffering group. This group endured all through and to the end of the tribulation up to the second coming of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, I'll read it to you, verse 4. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. These, I believe, are those enduring saints that Jesus predicted would be during that time. He who endures to the end will be saved. There will be lawlessness, there will be callousness, but there will be faithful ones. And these are they. Okay, pause there for a moment. Let's let's come back from the future. Because... There's a greater truth for us here this morning. And here's the truth. True faith. True faith. Though it has its lapses from time to time. It always does. Even Abraham, the father of faith, had his lapses of faith, right? Even though faith wanes, has its lapses, true faith has always the quality of permanence. Permanence. You know well the promise that Paul wrote to the Philippians, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the point. You can be faithful to God because you have a faithful God who will keep you. Faith that is true faith endures to the end. There are several good examples of this throughout history. One of my favorite comes from the second century A.D. It's a guy who knew John, the apostle, really well. It was one of his disciples. His name was Polycarp. He was the bishop, the pastor of Smyrna. I was in Smyrna a few months back. Polycarp was 86 years old. He was arrested by the Roman government. They threatened to kill him. He was brought before the proconsul, or the governor of Rome, one of them. Polycarp stood before the proconsul who wanted to spare this old man his life. 
He said, look, Polycarp, just do yourself a favor, renounce Christ, and we'll let you go. This old man said, 80 and 6 years, I have trusted in Christ and He has never, ever done me any injury. Why should I now blaspheme my King and my Savior? The proconsul didn't like that answer. He threatened him and he said, I have wild beasts. Polycarp smiled and said, Call for them. For why should I repent of that which is good to embrace that which is evil? Proconsul didn't like that answer either. He said, I'll burn you with fire. This old 86-year-old man, smiling, said, You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is extinguished when you face the coming fire of God's judgment, which is everlasting. Talk about an answer. You know, when your life is on the line, you think that you would soften your answer, but you might say, well, everybody's entitled to believe whatever they want. (laughs) Not this God. He just says, look, go ahead. Do what you will. Well, he was 86 years old. He's thinking, I've lived a good long life and this isn't a bad way to go. I'm not going to deny Christ. I've always loved the motto in Latin that the Marine Corps has adopted. And you'll hear soldiers, Marines say it to one another, Semper Fi, man, or Semper Fidelis. Always faithful. True faith True faith, true believers have true faith, and true faith will always endure. He who endures to the end will be saved. Now go back to Matthew 24. And we have an even more wonderful quality, condition upon the earth. There's going to be lawlessness. It'll abound. There's going to be callousness. People will grow cold toward one another. But... There will be faithfulness because true believers will be the enduring ones all the way through to the end. And on top of that, there's going to be responsiveness. There's going to be a mess, but there's going to be a message preached. Verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, you know what? Unfortunately... Verse 14 has been butchered by different groups, especially many mission organizations, who will say things like, Jesus Christ cannot come back until every person on earth hears the gospel. So we're holding him back because we haven't done the job. In fact, I've heard preachers say things like, let's hasten the day of Christ. Let's bring him back quicker by getting the gospel out. No. It doesn't mean that. Jesus Christ, first of all, is going to come back at the time appointed by the Father, not sooner, not later. As if we can schedule His coming. Jesus said only the Father knows that time. Not even the Son at that point knew it. We don't schedule the second coming of Christ. 
It's not up to us at all. I don't think that's what this means. I think simply this means despite deception, despite war, despite anarchy, despite persecution, despite callousness, God will still have His witness during that time. It's going to be a mess. But there's going to be a message. And you know what I've discovered? That messes are opportunities. See, if you have a mess and you send a messenger into the mess with a message, it can be very poignant, very powerful. The world's greatest mess is coming and the world's greatest message will be heralded during that time. You say, okay, that all sounds really flowery and good, Skip. However, if what you believe is true, that is the rapture of the church will have occurred before this, how are people going to get saved in the tribulation period if believers are gone? Answer, God is going to save more. God is going to save more. How do I know that? Revelation 11 introduces two witnesses. Witnesses. They have a message. And not only do they have a message, but they perform miracles for the Jewish nation. Now, we don't know who the witnesses are. I can guess. I have my own theory, and it's only a theory. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. I think it's going to be Moses and Elijah. You know why? Because they call fire down from heaven. Only one guy in the Bible did that. That was Elijah. Another one will turn water into blood. The other guy that did that was Moses. And I got to thinking... What better witnesses to the Jews could there be than Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest prophet? Maybe, maybe not. But these two witnesses are going to kindle something within the Jewish nation. The result, I believe, is going to be 144,000, the Bible says, Jewish people, 12,000 from each tribe, who are saved and sealed by God for service during that time. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Jewish believer, but when a Jewish person comes to grips with Jesus Christ isn't just some Gentile name, he's my Mashiach, my Messiah. Something happens. They're really on fire. If you've ever stood between the evangelical guns of a Jewish believer, it's like, whoa, look out. Listen, 12 Jewish disciples turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine 144,000 of them being let loose? And I think it's those 144,000 that are greatly responsible for the great multitude of every tribe, every tongue, every nation that follows in that same chapter of people who are saved. So we know there's going to be two witnesses. We know there's going to be 144,000. And push all that aside for a minute. There's going to be something else that has never happened before, ever. It's going to happen during that tribulation period. There's going to be an angel flying through heaven. One final announcement of the gospel will be heralded all over the world to everyone alive. Never happened before. It's in Revelation chapter 14. In the sixth verse we read... Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, or dialect, and people. Now with that in mind, look again at Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. See the word world? Oikumene is the word. 
It means the inhabitable globe. It's not the cosmos. That's the typical term when we think of the world in the Bible, the world system opposed to God. This is the oikumene. This is the inhabitable globe. And then it goes on, as a witness to all nations, ethnos, every ethnic group. Everywhere around the globe, every ethnic group in every dialogue is going to hear the gospel. Okay, imagine, just imagine. You have to imagine you won't be here. It's tribulation time. It's chaos. Suddenly you hear a noise outside. You go, well, that sounds like a big, booming voice. What is that? Is that a jet flying over? You, you walk outside. Whoa! I think that's a... An angel. Yeah, I think it's an angel. And it's telling me to get right with God. I understand this angel. Somebody who speaks another language, I understand this angel. Here's the point. There's going to be a final and total evangelization of the entire known world and every single person alive is going to hear it. And so Jesus said, this gospel will be preached in all the world, to all nations. And look at, and then the end will come. That's the end of the world. That's the end of the tribulation. That's just before the millennial reign of Christ. Then the end will come. Then Jesus will return. Then God will set up His kingdom. Then Christ will rule and reign on this earth and forevermore. That'll be the end. But that's then. This is now. The end is not yet. The Bible speaks about this coming judgment But understand, that is coming, but right now we're in a very special time of God's favor, God's goodness, God's grace. Some theologians call this the age of grace. The age of grace. You know the song we sang before our sermon this morning, We Exalt You, O Lord, or I Exalt You? That praise song had a new meaning to one parent when he brought his three-year-old daughter to church one day, and she sang the words a little bit differently, as kids often do. We exhaust thee, O Lord, we exhaust thee, O Lord, she sang. (laughs) Aren't you glad that's not true? Aren't you glad that we have not yet exhausted God's grace, mercy, and goodness yet? That this still is an outpouring of God's goodness and grace and favor. And he would outreach, reach out to you this morning and say, You can come and be forgiven of all the past. You can enter into my kingdom and escape all of these coming things. You can know my favor and my goodness. Because the end is not yet. I have a hunch that a few have come today who have heard appeals before and you've just said in your own heart, I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get into that stuff. I'm here. I'll watch. I'll get involved. But I'm not going to give my life to Christ yet. You know, perhaps, that Jesus said, you are either for me or against me. If you haven't received him yet, then up to this point you have said no to him. A day is coming when God's going to say, no more grace, judgment comes. Oh yeah, 
There's going to be wonderful outpouring during that time. It's going to be very difficult. God's grace is extended to you this morning, friend. And Jesus would say to you, Whosoever will, let him come. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray for anyone gathered here this morning. First of all, anyone gathered here this morning. Everyone gathered here this morning. That our hearts would be calmed in the midst of the raging storm. Maybe we were just a little more frightened four weeks ago when the news broke with Israel and Lebanon the possibility of Iran. Maybe we've just sort of gotten used to it. But there still is a storm raging. There are still wars and rumors of wars. And even apart from what's going on there, some of us are just experiencing tough times. And you're here to be present in the midst of the darkest time to offer your comfort. And I pray that you would I pray that you'd mend broken hearts. And then, Lord, for some who have gathered, but they have not yet surrendered to Jesus. Father, I think back as early as last service, just 9.15, beautiful lady in her 80s, for the first time made a commitment to Christ. That's miraculous, Lord. And you did it. And I think of some who are within earshot of this, right now in this room, who need to do the same thing and say yes to Jesus and receive Christ. They may be great folks, religious people, but they haven't surrendered personally to Jesus to receive forgiveness, to receive life, to be born again, to make a conscious decision, a commitment to know Christ. We pray you change all of that right now. And we pray, Father, that if some have walked away from you and they're starting to get harder and harder, that right now in the nick of time you'd rescue them and bring them back. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.